want you to turn if you have a Bible with you. If not, that's okay. These are pretty familiar verses to you. Some of you have seen John 3.16 in the end zone of a football game. Some guy had on a rainbow wig and he's got a big placard saying John 3.16 and people wondered what that means and so forth and so on. But it's a really familiar verse to folks who, who come to church regularly. I know there's some folks here today that are, that are searching, seeking answers. Things have always gone as well as you'd like in church. Pastor Eric talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But in John chapter 3, verse 16, we have this beautiful verse. It's been described by lots of different folks, very smart folks, given a lot of thought. But it says, for God so loved the world. And you know, there are a lot of things to love in this world. I love my daughter. I love my granddaughters. I love my son. Uh, I love my dog. My dog loves me. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But God loved the world. And there's some pretty ugly things in the world. There's some pretty bad things happening out there. I'm kind of a news junkie. My son has a degree in political science, and so we sit around and analyze things all the time until we can't stand it anymore, and then we'll change the channel or turn it off and or play Xbox and kill some zombies or something like that. I don't know. That's fun stuff for guys. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is, it was one of a kind man. The only one he had, the best he had, that whosoever, I love that, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come here to point his bony finger at you and tell you what's wrong with you. I found out a long time ago most folks don't need my help in understanding their brokenness. In my home church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, they had this wall of fame. The, the church was established before the Civil War, and so they have all these pictures of the preachers of days gone by. And one of my favorites is this guy who's standing there and leaning over the pulpit. And I thought, man, I wonder what kind of sermon he was preaching that day. <laughs> uh, God didn't send Jesus into this world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. This was a gift. It was intentional. It was planned before the foundations of the heaven and earth. Before one of us made one mistake, God knew that we would need a Savior. He knew we'd need a Messiah. Someone would need to come and deliver us. But not from the Romans, not from the Greeks, not from the Egyptians, not from the Americans, but from ourselves. So this morning I want to answer a really tough question or maybe try to answer it. You may not agree with me, and that's okay. You, can, you have the right to be wrong. Y'all are going to catch on here pretty soon. The more you laugh, the faster this sermon goes. <laughs> What's God's answer to the evil and suffering in this world? Because we see evil and suffering in this world. If we continue to read in John chapter 3, He's going to go on to talk about the deeds of men and that they are evil and that they would rather hide in darkness because their deeds are evil than to be in the light because they don't do good things. Now... I found out an interesting thing about our little gathering here this morning before this service. I preached the early service, and did you know that there's more light on this side of the stage than there is on this side of the stage? Do you see me better over here or over there? Over there, yeah. Do I look better over here? Or, I'm just kidding. I'm not allowed to say over there. I understand. Why is it so? Well, there's a lot of thought around why people ask the why question. 
A few weeks ago, one of my dearest friends in all the world um, died from cancer. And I'd known Linda since she was 12 and I was 14. Now, that wasn't but about eight years ago, okay? I get. <clears throat> no, it was 43 years ago. Linda was one of the kindest people I've ever, persons I've ever known. She was generous to a fault. She gave and gave and gave. And I never heard her say anything about anyone negative. She never talked about people. She wasn't a gossiper. And when she contracted cancer a couple of years ago, almost three years ago, you know, I was hopeful. I was very hopeful for her. But that wasn't the outcome. Her sister's here today, and I love Pam, and I love Tom, and, you know, we, we struggled with this. Why? Why Linda? Why not me? I mean, I've got plenty of negative things to say about people. <laughs> I go to church camp just to be judgmental. <laughs> you know, I mean, why not that sorry old no good so-and-so? Why, why didn't he get cancer? I mean, he deserves it, right? Not, not Linda. Why? I don't know that I can answer that question. I don't know. I want to know the answer to that question. But I, I, I do know that God provides some answer to us who are suffering. I was a pastor for a long time. Um, seemed like a lot longer than it was. 25 years. And then I was a hospital chaplain for another seven and a half, eight years. And in that time, I, I saw, a lot of, saw a lot of disease, saw a lot of discouragement, saw a lot of death. 650 funerals in my short lifetime. And in my last hospital, wonderful hospital, we delivered 11,000 babies there last year. Wow, y'all are busy. That's all I can say about that. 11,000 babies. Whew. Anyway, unfortunately, as good as we are, and the work that we do is well done, not all those babies will survive. And so one of my most difficult tasks was to sit down with a mom and dad and talk to them about the death of their infant. And after about 600 of those, I, I was getting pretty weary. Can you imagine? Because those are never fun. I mean, th those are just not fun. And they're not easy. And they don't get easier with time. In fact, they get harder with time. Funerals don't get easier. They get more difficult. Because now it's my parents. Now it's my friends. And God forbid that it's my children. Can I hear an amen? Yeah. So there's usually a couple of reasons people are asking why. Why did this happen? One of them is, is they're, they're looking for answers. They're, they're, they're legitimately seeking hope and help from God. They really want to know. Deep down in their heart, they're broken. Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, he says, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. He didn't say that we don't mourn. He didn't say that we don't cry. He's talking to believers who, whose loved ones are dying. He didn't say that. He just said that we mourn differently. We mourn with, a, with something that we know is different about death. That it's not a period, the end of a sentence, but it's a comma. And that life continues on. And then some people ask why, because they're looking for someone to blame. And God's a pretty easy target. You know, I haven't heard him defending himself lately. And in fact, when they tried Jesus, uh, he didn't open his mouth. He spoke not a word in his own defense. And they were amazed that he didn't say anything. Up to a certain point in time. 
So when we start asking this question, why bad things happen? So often the case is that we're looking for answers. There's generally three recognized causes of evil or suffering in the world. When I say recognized, people who've sat around and give it some thought, first of all, attribute it to moral evil or something caused by human actions. Again, we look in Genesis chapter 4, that early story of, of the earth, and we see that Cain kills and murders his brother Abel over an offering to God, really of jealousy. As jealous for his brother's favor, or appeared to be. And so we see the first actions of, of what we call moral evil, or actions of humans that bring on suffering. Then there's natural evil, or the suffering caused by non-humans, uh, tsunamis, earthquakes, storms, tornadoes. I, I grew up in Tornado Alley right on the border of Arkansas, Oklahoma, and I did get over it. Um, that is being brought up there. Okay, Lord, let's start over. The idea is that there are things that happen in nature that none of us have anything to do with, and that that brings on suffering. We've seen it even in the last few days in the South, and people in storms and, and their lives being taken away. And then theodicy, that's a big fancy word for means that God allowed suffering. God allowed for suffering. In Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job said, Blessed be the name of the Lord, for He gives and He takes away. In other words, God allows things to go on. And what had happened to Job was that his children had died and his wife had died and all of his crops had been burned and all of his animals died and he didn't have anything left except, well, his wife hadn't quite died yet. She will yet. But the point is, is that he, he's, he's lost everything. And his good friends say, and come to him and say, why don't you just curse God and die and get this over with? And yet in all these things, uh, Job did not sin. So the idea of blaming God has been around for quite a while. It, yeah, you know, it's easy. It's, it's his fault. He's allowing this to go on. Why? Why would this be? Because in the nature of God, we find that God is all-powerful, omnipowerful, omnipotent. He's all-knowing, omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Now, he's not in everything. That's pantheism. But he's everywhere. So is, is he not watching out? Is he, is, does he not know? Is he not capable? Because we believe he's also omnibenevolent, that he's all good, right? So if he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-good, why are these things happening? Why did the crops burn and the animals die? Why did... Good thing. Why did something bad happen to this good person? There's a rabbi named Harold Kushner who, in the 70s, his son was diagnosed with a very uh, well life-threatening disease, genetic disease called pejoria, pejoria. And then that disease, what happens is the body ages quickly, and uh, the boy was diagnosed at age three and at age 14 died. And so, in 1978, a year after his death. Rabbi Kushner wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen. And the thesis of his book is this. Either God isn't all-powerful because He's not keeping these bad things from happening, or God is not all-good because He's allowing these bad things to happen. 
So Krishna's just looking at the life as he sees it, his perspective. I'm just an observer. But his perspective is, how did this happen? Why did God let my son die? And I can tell you that's a, that's a reasonable question. There, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I love the questions the disciples ask Jesus because I tend to struggle with those things too. I struggle with the same things these guys struggle with. I struggle with belief. I struggle with knowing how to pray. I, know, I struggle with praying, being dis, disciplined, and being a disciple. I struggle with all those things. So he's asking, in my estimate, a very reasonable question. If God's all-powerful, why are these things going on? Or maybe God's not all good. <laughs> and so some of these things are happening because he wants them to. Well, I have two concerns with this thesis. Now, this is Bruce's concerns. This and 50 cents won't buy you a cup of coffee anymore. Uh, you know, you can go down to Starbucks and 50 cents will get you in the door. But my thesis is this, my concern with this thesis is we are not all good. We're not all good. In fact, there are are things in us that aren't so good. We might even call them bad. And last Sunday, Pastor Eric preached about sin. Now, we know that that's not a problem in this room. (laughs) Until we get in our car on Southwest Freeway. And then we turn into this monster right who wishes they he had like you know machine guns on the front of his car or something right to eliminate problems in the roadway oh, i don't know see the problem is is that we want to know why bad things happen because of good people but the reality is is that we're not good in romans chapter 3 paul writes it like this in verse 10 there are none that are good no not one none seeks you know no not one there's none that doeth righteousness no not one and then he goes on to write in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The problem is, is that, that with this thesis, we are not all good, therefore we can't make the claim that nothing bad can or should happen to us. Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 7, he says, the thing I don't want to do, I do. Do you all ever wrestle with that? The thing, to do good, I want to do good, but I don't do it. To not do bad, I do it. I, I find myself there too often. Maybe you're all going to get up and leave in just a minute. This preacher's too sinful. I don't know. Maybe worse than you think. (laughs) Good things. And the second problem I have with this thesis is that good things happen to bad people. Have you ever wondered how they get away with some of the things they get away with? Really? I mean, where was God when this father and daughter were murdered last week? Right? Here in Houston. They found her body. Now, I'm trying to keep this at a level for our young ears and young eyes, but, the, but, but, but life's hard. And we're not going to shelter our children too long. Where was God when all this happened? You see, David, King David, he was, he was hanging around the kingdom, and he saw wicked people prospering. And so in Psalm 73, he said, What's going on here, God? These, these wicked people seem to, you know, they're, they're making a lot of money. They're getting away. They're ripping people off. They're, you know, they're congressmen. I didn't say that. (laughs) Um, But really, he did pray that. Because he saw good things happening to bad people. Now, of course, King David was no one to point fingers. We'll talk about him on another day. but, but, But it 
it affirms what I see sometimes. And then the question is, well, so God's all-powerful and He's all, all these things. Why, don't, why does He just make us good? And then bad things won't happen because most of the bad things that are happening are man-made. Amen? Oh, me? <laughs> no? Well, that's all right. Can't God make us all good so that nothing bad will happen? Absolutely. Sure He can. We call those robots. You know what a robot is. Like Will Robinson had a robot. Nobody in here under a certain age remembers Will Robinson. Danger. But we have, you know, a robot. So robots work like this. Uh, a significant other comes home from work. Uh, significant other's at home. Uh, significant other walks in the door. Had a long, hard day. Significant other punches a button on the significant other who just came home and all of a sudden transformed, loving, caring, kissing, hugging, significant other. Wonderful idea, right? Right? You married folks? Okay. Non-married folks? Uh, single folks? Uh, moms, dads, you never had a child come home and <clears throat> be ungrateful for anything. <clears throat> Only one of my children are here this morning. So, um, no, that's not what you want. You don't want a robot in your life. You want somebody who loves you for who you are. You want somebody who will wrap their arms around you, hug you, kiss you for who you are. Be good to you for who you are. Not the car you drive, not the home you live in, not the things you provided, but just who you are. Now, if you really want somebody to love you for who you are, you need to get a dog. <laughs> Dogs will love you for who you are. They don't care what, where you've been, what you've been doing, how long you've been gone, who you've been gone with. They don't even care about those things. They're just so happy when you get in the house, they wet the floor. I mean, that's how, they, that's how much they love you, right? I mean, they're excited. If you've gone five minutes, it's like five days. They don't care. They're just happy you're home. You're letting them out of that kennel or out in the backyard or whatever it is. You're feeding them. They're just happy because they were created to love you the way that you want to be loved and you want to love others and the way God does love you, by the way. There's a great book out. It's about eight or nine pages about God and dog. It's, it's really cool. You can look it up. No, we don't want robots. We want real love. We want someone to love us for who we are. By the way, that's the way God created you. God could have created you to punch a button and say, love me. But he didn't do that. He gave you free will. How does the idea of free will help answer the question of evil and suffering? Well, Let's roll back into Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to find the first commandment. The first commandment was, don't eat the fruit of that tree, for in that eating that fruit you will surely die. That was not the first commandment. The first commandment of the Bible was to have dominion over all the earth. God said, everything I've given to you, you're responsible for. Go out there and take care of it. So you know what? I think we ought to be taking care of Mother Earth, <laughs> right? I, I don't think we should be abusing the planet. But I've never hugged a tree and it hugs me back. But I have hugged a child that hugs me back. And I realize that God's given me responsibilities for my children, my grandchildren, my family, my friends my brothers and sisters in Christ, in this big old earth. 
And if I have responsibility, I also am accountable. Which means then, I'll have to answer for what I've done with it. Now, if I don't have responsibility, I don't have accountability. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what happens. Are you following this chain of argument? You see, God gives us the choice of taking care of things. And the better that we take care of them, the better things turn out, usually. Although sometimes, no matter what we do, they don't. So if I have no choice in what happens, then I can't be held responsible. When I was in seminary, I was working on a postgraduate degree in a seminary, and this seminary really emphasized a, a, a theological term called predestination, which doesn't really matter to most of us today. We don't, we don't even really care. But, but basically what that means is that, that God has predetermined all people who are going to come to know Him in faith and follow Him and be His children. Uh, I just I, I couldn't go there with my major professor on that. There were nine of us in our class. And so one Wednesday, we had a, a conversation. <laughs> the professor and the pupil. And guess who won? Not me. You see, it's, it's my view that God gives us a choice on what we do with what He's given to us. We are stewards, but now we have to decide how we're going to be a steward with that. Now, I looked up this guy. I'm not going to tell you his name, but his initials are BGC. You can figure that out on your own. But um, he's really a smart guy, and he wrote this down years ago, and, and, and so I just copied it from him. But it says the question of free will or moral liberty or the liberium arbitrium is one of the most important questions in philosophy. What is that? Does a person have the capacity to make decisions on their own with real ability to determine thoughts to choose his or her own course of life, unless you're under 16. Y'all going to catch on. You're going to say, Eric, don't ever let him preach again. I'm good with it. Okay. Or are choices, actions, outcomes, and circumstances of his or her life inevitable due to either a higher power, or things beyond his or her control predetermined by external influences. In other words, do you have any control over what happens to your life? And the answer is yes. I believe you do. I believe God's given you the freedom to choose better than to choose worse. Because God took the same path. You see, God took a risk with us. He said, I'm not going to make a bunch of robots... I'm going to create beings that have the choice to love me and follow me and give themselves to me. And I'm going to do the same thing. You see, Jesus didn't just die on the cross and give himself for you. He gave himself to you. This is not a God that's playing golf on some celestial golf course somewhere way up, you know, another galaxy. This is a God who wants to be personally intimate with you. Um, by the way, he already knows. So you might as well join the party. So, how is it that free will points us to God's answer for evil and suffering? And I say in it, it's the cross. It's the cross. It's the cross where God gives the answer to the evil and suffering in this world. 
And you may not like that answer. You may say, ah, that's not enough answer for me. I want something more tangible. And I, 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 can, I can get that. But let me remind you really quickly what went on. So on Thursday evening, Jesus gathered with his best friends in all the world. And he took some bread and he took some wine, which is what we're going to do in just a few moments. And, and he shared them with those guys. And there were girls there, by the way. And he said, look, I'm, I'm getting ready to give my life. And sure enough, in, a, in, in just a little while, he's going to be arrested. They left that room and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knelt down and he prayed. And Luke says that he was so distressed that blood droplets began to form on the surface of his skin. Now you say, how in the world can that be? I mean, I've sweated to the oldies, but I've never bled to the oldies. Well, there's a phenomenon that occurs when people are under great distress that blood will form on the surface of their skin. You can Google it. There are pictures if you really need to see one. The Roman soldiers show up and they arrest him. And he goes through six unlawful trials that night. Betrayed by his very best friend, I believe. I believe while we talk about Peter, James, and John, I think when we look at this situation and who betrayed him, I think there's biblical evidence to believe that this man was very loved by Jesus and very much cared about by Jesus. The Roman soldiers take him. Six false trials. He's standing before Pilate. You know the story. Greatest story ever told. Pilate does everything within his power to get rid of him. He even, in fact, says, look, uh, uh, this guy over here, Barabbas, you know, he's no good, sorry, no, nothing, nothing, and he deserves to be crucified. What has Jesus done? And nobody can really say anything. They just yell louder, crucify him. And by the way, the same crowd on Sunday wasn't the same crowd on Friday. If someone tries to tell you that, they're just misinformed and unread. That's okay. But the crowd on Friday was a crowd put together, plotted, and probably some of them paid for to be there, quite frankly, uh, to ensure that Jesus was going to be crucified. So Pilate says, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to crucify him for you. And before that, I'm going to, we're going to scourge him and we're going to get him worked up and real ready for crucifixion. Well, some of you, if you've done the study and done the reading, you know this, that, that a cat of nine tails, we believe, was started in Egypt maybe a thousand years before, how many hundred years before uh, this scene has occurred. And so they believed that cats were eternal. And they worshiped cats. And um, they believed that cats had nine lives. And so they made this whip out of cats' skin. And when people would misbehave, they would whip them with this cat of nine tails. And they believed that would cause virtue to come into them. In modern days, we spank children's behinds because there's a nerve, nerve that runs from their behind to their brain, and, and they get the same virtue. <sighs> Some days. Um, so, in fact, the Egyptians on their sailing ships would take a cat of nine tails to flog sailors with. They would keep it in a bag. When a sailor has misbehaved and was deserving of flogging, guess what they did? They got the cat, they called it a cat, cats out of the bag. It's true. You can Google it if you don't believe me. Everything on Google is true. <laughs> so, Pilate sends Jesus down to be scourged by Roman soldiers. They tie his hands above his head on a post. 
He's, he's dangling there. And a professionally trained Roman soldier with a cat of nine tails begins to whip his back. We believe that there were bits of bone laced into these nine strands of leather. And as that Roman soldier would take that cat of nine tails and strike it across Jesus' back, he would jerk back with great force and flesh and blood would fly off of him. Now whether it was 39 lashes or 40 minus 1, which is what Deuteronomy would not allow more than 40 because anything more than 40 would kill them. And they were so legalistic they didn't want to get close to 40 so they'd make it 39 lashes. Whether it was 39 lashes or 9 or 3 or whatever it was, it was brutal, insidious, and intended to inflict great pain. In fact, some people would die from the scourging alone. Then they took Jesus and they put him in a circle and they blindfolded him and they put a robe on his back and they put a crown of thorns on his head. Something like what we have here. And if you know anything about human anatomy, a cut on the head bleeds profusely. And Jesus is standing there bleeding from head to toe and they put him in the circle of Roman soldiers and they buffet him is what the scripture says. They hit him in the face and they say, prophesy and tell us who it is that hits you now. And this went on until he could hardly stand. And then, insult to injury, carry your crossbeam to Golgotha, the skull, a place of execution. Jesus was so weary, so tired, so beaten down. A few years ago, I, I teach a Bible study on Thursday mornings with a group of physicians. And a few years ago, I, I gathered some infectious disease doctors, uh, some uh, surgeons, some internists, uh, radiologists, uh, a, a variety of physicians. And we did a study of the physical effects of the scourging and the beating and then of the carrying of the cross and then, of course, of the nails. We'll get to it in a moment. And we talked about what's going on in, in Jesus' body physically at this point in time. Right now, He's bleeding out, as we would call it in layman's terms. Fever is raging through His body. He's in great agony and pain, so much that he can't even carry the cross beam himself. And a man named Simon of Cyrene is picked out of the crowd, and a Roman soldier says, you carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene was an African. He's a black man. And he picked up Jesus' cross, and he carried it for him to Calvary. There they laid him down, and they drove seven to nine-inch spikes through his wrists. If they'd have drove them through his hands, which is how the English language translates it, they would have ripped out. There's nothing here to hold them. But here it caught tendons and bone. And then they hoisted him up, and they bent his knees, and they drove him through his feet on top of each other. So he could push up, let air out, come down, take air in. All the time, his back rubbing up and down the cross. pretty ugly scene up to let air out up and down for three hours now I picked this slide out because I wanted to try and give you a little bit of a sense of what he looked like I could have toned it down again for younger eyes and ears but this is a pretty good depiction 
from the Passion of the Christ. When I, when I think about the punishment that Jesus endured, I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. It says that by His stripes, you can see those stripes are all the way around His torso, we are healed. The sin that has so infected us and sickened us to inflict pain upon others, evil, suffering on others, was healed by the stripes on His back and the cross that He died upon. This is, a, this is God's answer. If you think that God doesn't understand suffering, if you think that He's not aware of what you're going through, you haven't considered the cross long enough. My friend, Linda, we, we don't know why. why. Why the good sometimes die young. But on the day of her funeral, the family let three dove, white dove, go in symbol of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Then her husband, Rob, let one go in a symbol of Linda. He kissed the dove and he said, you were God's before you were mine and let the dove go. And I watched as the fourth dove, Linda, caught up with the three doves, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and they flew off. I actually have it on video on my phone and, and it's incredible. So we went into the funeral home and went to the chapel and <clears throat> spent some time with Linda alone and then then a family came in, our friends came in, and we'd been in there about an hour and 15 minutes, and I got ready to sit down in the clergy chair, which was right next to the pulpit, where I'd been standing for an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, the funeral director reached over and picked up a piece of green paper. And as he did that, I looked down and I saw a piece of white paper. And I thought, well, I can't leave it laying there since he picked it up. I've got to pick this up, right? And so I reached down, I picked it up, and do you know what it wasn't? It wasn't a piece of paper. It was a dove feather, a white dove feather. God said to me something and said to us all something that day. Linda's with me. So when we look into this world filled with pain and suffering and evil, I'm reminded of the dove of peace. And I ask you today to consider whatever struggle you may be in or you've gone through or you're going to go through, God's answer is in the cross. The cross upon which Jesus died for me, for you, for the world. For God so loved you that Jesus endured His wrath so that we could be with Him.